Hey there and welcome to another episode of the Desi VC podcast and I am your host Akash Pat and each week I bring you leading angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. This is our 43rd episode and I'm really excited about sharing this one with all of you. I've got Kiran Mysore here on the podcast with me today and Kiran as some of you may already know was also part of our DCVC summit part of our cross border investing panel so if you've enjoyed his insights on the summit i'm very confident that you're going to enjoy the next 60 65 minutes or so with kiran on the podcast today so to set some context for the episode kiran is the principal at utech japan and he joined that in 2018 where he focuses on early stage investments in it and healthcare He currently serves as a board observer of Tricog Health, Bugworks Research and Opal AI. And prior to joining Utech, Kiran was the head of India and Southeast Asia operations for Deloitte Tomatsu Venture Support Japan. He has supported over 50 deep tech Asian startups by connecting them with Japanese corporates and also worked closely with Meti Japan. Prior to that, he also co-founded a student-led social enterprise called Kriya. I'm very excited to speak to Kiran today on the podcast and we explore something we've never done on the show so far which is about delving a little deeper into deep tech investments. So, without further ado, let's head into the episode and listen to Kiran and what he has to offer on the deep tech space. Hi Kiran welcome to the show I'm particularly excited about our conversation today because in January you really lit up one of our panels on cross border investments and a lot of people enjoyed your take on it and I'm very very keen to pick it up from there where we left off so on on that note welcome to the DCVC podcast No thank you very much Akash I think uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, very impressed with what you are doing with the summit as well as podcast and your contribution to the broader ecosystem Very kind of you to say that, Kiran. I want to kick things off with a very simple question: How are things going for you right now? I wanted to compare the second half of 2020 to the first quarter of 2021, both from a personal standpoint and a professional standpoint, and really share some insights and learnings that you've come across in these very difficult period. Uh, yeah, I think it's been a it's been an interesting time. I'm right uh, and uh, uh, in a way I'll, I'll because we are a deep tech investor I'll touch a bit about deep tech but before that I can be slightly generic uh, the last half of uh, 2020 was more about defense right most most of the startups were kind of conserving cash even most of the VCs uh, like us probably like you guys as well we did a lot of uh, bridge rounds to ensure that the startups had enough runway to keep uh, to keep them going uh, plan out ahead uh, and the beginning of 2021 both in terms of uh, the economy me as well as uh, the vc landscape in general uh, has has taken off really fast right uh, if the last half of last year was about defense this is about offense uh, and deep tech in general deep tech in particular has been a bit of anti fragile which means uh, though things are stretched it has actually gotten better over time we've seen several sectors such as for example telehealth uh, we have a few sectors on robotics and automation uh, we have of course we have a startup in the infectious disease space they have a lot of tailwinds one thing we've been obviously seeing on the vc landscape is preemptive rounds right we get uh, our portfolio companies what we thought would be the metrics let's say for series a uh, looks like that sometimes uh, half the half those metrics are enough to raise a series a at the current environment uh, 
so on that front, it's really good. The other thing that has been interesting is uh, uh, talent is always uh, a difficulty, right? In the last half of uh, 2020 opened up, or the first and the second half of 2020 opened up a lot of good talent who were unfortunately let go by some of the other companies. Because of that, some of our portfolio companies were able to staff up, and now uh, they are hitting hard on the go-to market. Uh, in fact, some of our deep tech companies, it takes time to commercialize the product, right? Uh, they took some time out, uh, planned the product ahead in the, in the last uh, six to eight months, and now they are going slowly hard on the GTM. Uh, so that's, that's uh, in generic, uh, been, been our experience. One, of course, uh, one thing that I hope will happen is uh, though strengthening uh, existing relationships through virtual meetings has been good, Developing new relationships just through virtual meetings is still tough. So I do hope uh, we can start to do some face-to-face meetings at least uh, going forward. And I live in Japan. I hope I can start traveling back to Singapore, India, and US where my portfolio companies are. Now I'm going to kick things off from the last last part of the uh, answer that you provided, which is you currently live in Japan. Talk to us about that trajectory. You know, you started off obviously in India. What inspired you to go to Japan and especially be in venture capital in Japan? Uh, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, there's a there's a there's a diplomatic answer, and there's a real answer. I'll give I'll give, I'll give both. You can uh, uh, I'll give a flavor. So the uh, the real or the 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 usual way. Uh, I grew up in the southern part of India, a small town called Padravati. Uh, did my undergrad in Bangalore and started my career at ClearTrip, uh, which is a travel e-commerce company, which has one of the best engineering teams across the board uh, and UI teams across the board. Uh, I started doing. Uh, descriptive analytics there, statistical analysis uh, for their hotel bookings. And that's when I got interested in machine learning. Uh, when I was looking, I worked there for one year, uh, still from 2013, mid to 2014. And when I was looking for opportunities uh, to do a master's abroad, the things that I had in mind was uh, the deep learning wave was then taking off. So I think the first deep learning models on uh, NVIDIA chips had been run, and that was starting to give results. That's when I got interested in machine learning and I wanted to do a master's, something related to that. But the second is I did not really want to do a master's in computer science. I was looking for something which uh, uh, which was at the intersection of business and technology. You can call it applied research as such. Um, uh, the third aspect is, is uh, a lot of people from India usually tend to go west, right? It, it, it is great. Uh, so for me, I think from, purely from a competitive positioning standpoint and from a learning standpoint, I'm sure that we'll all be connected to US and the West in some way or the other. Uh, so what I thought was, well, let's see if I can uh, try to find opportunities in the East. And the two opportunities that come up is Japan and China. The Japan-India partnership at that point of time was taking off. And uh, from geopolitical standpoint, from a, from an economic standpoint, uh, it's the complementarity is great, right? Like Japan is old and India is young. Japan is good in hardware. India is good in software. Uh, Japan is good in infrastructure, physical infrastructure. India is good in digital infrastructure. Uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, that sort of complementary things. And I thought that was a good inflection point. And uh, perhaps both from a career standpoint and from a personal learning standpoint, Japan would be interesting. Uh, that led me to come to Japan in 2014. Of course, the real answer is also that my budget for higher education was maybe $10. Uh, the University of Tokyo in Japan, as well as the uh, uh, Japanese government, was uh, kind enough to give me a full scholarship. That's the reason I did a master's in machine learning from University of Tokyo. And that brought me to Japan uh, almost six years back. That's fantastic. And what's the motivation getting into venture capital? Now, given that you did mention that you were very interested in machine learning, you obviously went to Japan to learn and study. 
now that you've finished your education, how did that jump into venture capital take place? What was the tipping point? At what point did you say, I'm not going to go back and work for a tech company. I'm probably going to invest in these companies going forward. Yeah, this, it's a, a, probably I'll tackle that from both professional and personal standpoint. First, uh, uh, from a professional standpoint, uh, while I was in University of Tokyo, I, I, I was in 2014 till 2016. Apart from publishing papers on deep learning or recurrent neural networks, which my research was, uh, I also started a social enterprise focused on upskilling poor urban youth in India. Uh, and we got some support from Clinton Global Initiative. So that was my stint with startups, which I absolutely enjoyed. During that time, I also got fairly active in the Japan startup ecosystem, did, a, did an internship in a VC fund, quite liked it. Uh, and um, so that was uh, 2018, mid-2018 end. Uh, once I graduated, I had a couple of opportunities, uh, including the job at Google in Europe and uh, DJI Innovation in China, etc. But I really believe that two years is too short to get real value out of Japan and startups in general, right? You need to play kind of long-term games with long-term people. Japan and startups uh, both fit into that, uh, that mold, you can say so. Uh, that's the reason I thought, okay, let me give myself more time for both. And I ended up taking a job for about 1.5 years at Deloitte Japan's Open Innovation Division, uh, where I was helping startups in India and Southeast Asia connect with Japanese uh, corporations. I also undertook a lot of projects by Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, uh, which is Japan's government, and to help international startups expand to Japan. That is one way I developed a deep network of uh, startups, especially deep tech companies in India and Southeast Asia. And then in 2018 beginning, uh, I joined UTech. UTech is University of Tokyo Edge Capital. Uh, we are a $550 million deep tech fund linked with University of Tokyo in Japan, but independent. Currently, I'm the only non-Japanese investor in UTech and I lead our international uh, investments, especially focusing on AI. Uh, I knew the managing partner of UTech through my university days, uh, and we kept talking and uh, deep tech in Singapore and India or Southeast Asia and India, Greater Asia in general was just emerging. So that point of time was right, and that's the reason I kind of made a move. From a personal standpoint, the internet has democratized information, right? But what about democratization of opportunities? So, well, I was growing up in a small town. That was a, a key thing that, that struck a chord with me. Uh, social mobility is kind of a cause that's worth dedicating a lifetime for, right? And achieving that sort of social mobility requires uh, creating a level playing field across the board and expanding the pie for everyone. And for me, at least, I know not of a better socioeconomic system than startups and entrepreneurship that accomplishes it. So right now, I find a lot of pleasure in helping entrepreneurs use technology to solve amazing problems. They are, of course, the kings and queens, uh, but helping them to do that is, is a very fulfilling job. So for, both from a personal standpoint and from a career standpoint, uh, that, that made sense. It's been a fantastic journey for you, Kiran, and you know, from where you started and what you're currently doing and the interest levels and all of that kind of aligning in a way where you're today sitting at this very beautiful vantage point where you can both look at companies, make an impact by advising them. And that's kind of one of the things that you do very actively with some of the portfolio companies that you work with. And you and I have had this discussion in the past as well, wherein, especially in deep tech, you can't pay, you need patience. You need to understand products. You need to understand um, how the founders are thinking. And more than anything else, it's patience. It's a very long waiting game. VC itself is a very long waiting game, but it becomes 
extra, it goes an extra mile, especially when you're investing in deep tech. And you really need patient investors who understand all of these things while you're investing uh, in this particular sector. Now that creates a very good segue into deep tech. And one thing that we haven't touched upon in this podcast at all is the sector that we're going to discuss today. If I were to ask you a very simple question and if you could define it to some of our listeners who have been hearing this word, who have been hearing this buzzword for the last couple of years, people have been hearing deep tech all over, but nobody really seems to understand deep tech, right? And that's the biggest problem that people face uh, within deep tech. When you listen to somebody, each one has their own definition and rightly so, because when you think about deep tech, a lot of people start thinking about biosciences and robotics but we think about deep tech people think anything that's associated with r&d that doesn't really have any application right now kind of classifies under deep tech and they're all right in their own way how do you personally define deep tech and if you could do a deep tech 101 for our listeners who are listening to this term for the first time it would be fantastic yeah, I think uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating field to be, right? And of course, uh, uh, the usage of the word deep tech, maybe if you look at Google Trends, uh, it's uh, probably skyrocketed in the last uh, in the last few uh, uh, years, at least, though it's been around for a fairly long time. Uh, I think in general, when we look at deep tech companies, what we think is uh, any startup where IP or technology can be a key differentiator. Obviously, technology is never the only differentiator. But having a core technology as the key differentiator that gives you at least a head start over someone else who might be doing similar things, uh, and that technology which can be defensible, either to patents, either through a trade secret or whatever else it is, that's the way we think about deep tech. Uh, one uh, model that I kind of like like to envision is what is called a pastures quadrant. Uh, people uh, or listening to this podcast can look it up. Uh, let me try to unpack that. Let's say on the x-axis, you have a consideration for use uh, that is like, well, it is not so useful and it is definitely useful. And on the y-axis, let's say you have that quest for fundamental understanding or scientific rigor. Uh, uh, on, on the lower end, you can say uh, is, is, well, the use is minimum and uh, the, the scientific rigor is also minimum, which is fine. Uh, on the bottom right, you have very useful one, but the quest for scientific rigor is still minimum, then that is applied research. Edison historically was a master at this, right? And most of the entrepreneurship has been focusing on applied research as such. So the use is a lot, but uh, the the scientific rigor is more of application or uh, kind of like commercializing the the, the scientific innovation that has already happened. On the left top, uh, what you have is basic research and basic research is the as as you rightly mentioned the scientific uh, innovation is high but the applicability or the usage is fairly low and niels bohr actually did that really well so he is kind of one of the masters of basic research right? and there are several others as well tesla probably is also in that uh, segment uh, on the top top right uh, up until the top what you have is what we call use inspired basic research which means it is still, technology is still a question. It's not a solved problem where either the entrepreneurs or scientific uh, uh, innovators uh, do come up with a fundamental innovation uh, that is new and novel in certain way. But it is also inspired by use, which means to say that that innovation is very much in tune with the problem that a potential customer may be facing, which means it's not like a, a, a scientist is pursuing a research for the 
has an end of its own, which is basic research. Uh, it's not that they're just commercializing uh, uh, an innovation into a field, which is applied research, but this is more like youth-inspired basic research where there is an element of innovation uh, and there is an element of customer use. So when we look for deep tech startups, what we look for is this pasture quadrant, uh, which is up and to the right, where Louis Pasteur was kind of like, uh, is, is the hall hallmark, of, uh, hallmark of this, if that makes sense. Well, it definitely does. And you kind of broke it down really well. And if possible, I'm also going to provide a chart in the episode notes that people can really follow what Kiran just mentioned here. Now, going and playing in the sport quadrant is also very difficult, right? It's not that easy and it's not as simple as you described it to be. Because one thing if you have seen is that scientific entrepreneurs are undercapitalized relative to the market and relative to their own potential. And we have seen that happen. And more than anything else, this is also because of the deficit that's on the VC side. And unfortunately, yeah. VCs also suffer from network biases. And given that most VCs today are operators who don't really come from a scientific background themselves, they haven't been in the research side. Not a lot of people have been. Uh, if you take, if you just do a 30,000 feet view and you are able to dissect the venture capital industry all over the world, most 95% of them are VCs who, are, who, are, who have been operators in their lives and they don't come from research backgrounds. Now, when that sort of a bias exists in the ecosystem, how do you invest in these sectors? How, how can you even take a bet? Not to say that those who have been operators might not be able to understand, but you do require some special bit of understanding here. How are you looking at this problem and how can we as VCs bridge that gap? Because there's some really interesting companies that are being... Mm. Uh, form today in the deep tech uh, space but unfortunately not a lot can really understand that and therefore some really good ideas are going unfunded uh, yeah i think your, your point is right uh, my my personal belief i think it is a myth that a deep tech uh, vc should come from a scientific background right of course like if you look at the tech team of course there are people with phds in life sciences or semiconductors i have a background in machine learning but there are also uh, generalists who have either come from consulting or related backgrounds who are doing just fine. I think what is very important from a VC standpoint is having that intellectual curiosity and rigor to do the due diligence, right? I, I, I can provide like maybe a framework that, that I use kind of internally uh, in order to uh, assess or evaluate deep tech companies. Uh, and that could be useful uh, for, uh, for, for the listeners as such, right? Uh, when we look at uh, deep tech companies, and by the way, uh, technology by itself, as I mentioned, uh, what what it can give is kind of a head start for you to do it. Even if you are a deep tech startup, obviously you still got to focus on GTM and all that. And uh, so the way when we look at deep tech startups, evaluating the risk uh, or dividing uh, the the or breaking up the company into several risk metrics is quite useful. Uh, there are a couple of risks, like such as team risk and market risk, which are generic to most companies, right? Whether you're deep tech or not, there is definitely the team risk. Uh, what are the gaps that you need to fill? And there is the market risk. Uh, will the market be big enough? Or can you really execute it? Um, will the market, does the market have enough uh, paying capacity and so on and so forth? Uh, those are common to normal startups and it exists for deep tech startups as well. There are three or four specific risks that uh, pertain to deep tech startups which I'd like to touch upon. First is the technology risk itself, right? Uh, will the technology work? And that is where we spend a lot of time trying to do due diligence. 
some of the times some of our team members ourselves could be experts in it so we try to read the research papers understand and try to see is it really the state of the art is it really defensible if so why is it uh, why can't it be replicated by someone else but the second thing we do is this is where uh, utex academic networks really helps because we are university of tokyo h capital though we are independent we have good connections with several universities uh, we talk to several experts and researchers and try to understand what is fact and what is opinion right even though uh, we are we may not be experts in a certain deep tech field as we see by talking to experts we can kind of try to piece out okay these are the facts of the technology that this startup has and these are the opinions or the forward looking statements and that kind of helps us to kind of due diligence whether the technology has any merit which is specific to our deep tech startup right after technology kind of risk what we try to do is uh, try to see the product risk even though the technology is good it rarely happens that you hash a product and the customers will just come and like take it right so how is can this technology be productized into a repeatable or scalable product that is the other aspect of uh, uh, of of the risk that we that we try to uh, uh, assess and then there are specific risks two other risks that are more prominent for deep tech startups one is obviously the regulatory risk which is for certain type of deep tech startups especially for fintech uh, and uh, and for life sciences startups as well uh, one thing that we try to see is even before getting such a regulatory approval can the startup put their product out in the market and get some initial feedback is that possible uh, and and the last type of risk is obviously the funding risk because funding for deep tech startups is low we always kind of look for who what are the metrics required for possible next round of financing how can we form a syndicate with other venture investors are there perhaps sometimes usually in when they go to we predominantly do pre series a series a kind of investing and seed as well so when they go to series a series b several of the corporate vcs are more open perhaps to uh, funding uh, deep tech startups than traditional venture capitalists so how do we have enough network with them to bring them on board so apart from the team and market risk we also try to evaluate the on 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 the access of technology product funding and regulatory risk these are some in, very interesting um, points that you brought up especially on the framework side now even if you take a look at some of the market risks the pre product validation the lot of false positives feature price demand mm. all of these things kind of keep mm. coming up right when we have conversations and for me yeah. it's usually the founder risk and the fact that it takes a lot of time to bring these products to life mm. when you are looking at these companies or when you speak to the founders for the first time what are you personally looking for when that first conversation with the founder happens because typically when you speak to a company mm. you know there's traction you know there's uh, some yeah. sort of product market fit you kind of analyze you understand the sector a little bit but sometimes within deep tech because the sectors to themselves might be very new very niche it's very difficult to really know if it's a hot sector or not until you know it's a couple of years uh, into the future and you you touched on a very good point there as well you said it's a myth that a lot of founders within deep tech need to come from scientific backgrounds or whole phd's you can also be an operator you can also be a generalist who's kind of gone on and built uh, these companies how do you personally look for it and what are some of the things that need to stand out for you initially for you to even bring this conversations to the next level yeah i think on that point before uh, i think the way i think about the role of a deep tech vc uh, is at uh, least especially once we invest i'll i'll come to what we look for before we invest but once we invest uh, 
uh, helping the technical focused CEO in order to transition uh, into a well-rounded CEO. That's been one of the biggest pleasures that we have, right? That is where we place a lot of emphasis on. And several of the times at the early stage investing, the, the way we think of ourselves as deep tech VCs, he's a project manager or a program manager, right? There is a funding element, there is an IP element. Can we as VCs help the team put together all those into a well-rounded project or a program? So several of the times I feel when I'm helping my portfolio companies, I'm sort of a technology project manager. But before that, I think the question that you asked and how do we even evaluate, uh, especially in the first call itself? There are maybe two or three key things that uh, that stand out as the important things uh, in assessing the deep tech companies fairly quickly, right? The first one is uh, obviously on the team. Um, there are three things maybe in the team that that I at least look for. One is, does anyone on the team have deep domain expertise? And it does not necessarily mean a PhD. Sometimes it does, but do they have have they do, do they have some key insights that they have due to by immersing themselves in a certain domain, either in terms of the amount of time or perhaps in the depth of the work that they have done? So does somebody have a domain expertise? Second is can anybody in the team have an understanding of sales to an extent. It again, it's a it's a co-founding team in general, right? It's okay if it is not there, uh, but he is at least the entrepreneur open to thinking about it because probably in our experience, the single most defining feature of a successful deep tech startup is those deep tech startups that have done technology development slash product development and customer development hand in hand, not waiting, not going it in a sequential way that hey, we'll build this technology and then we'll turn it out into a product and then we'll talk to customers and then we'll productize. Uh, but the startups that have done it parallelly, uh, doing product development hand in hand with customer development, at least is the founder or are the founders already doing it or are they at least open to that, uh, doing sales, uh, doing uh, customer development? And that doesn't, I don't mean that hiring VP of sales on the first day, obviously, uh, but are they open to themselves talking to customers uh, and, and factoring their feedback into product development? That is second thing that we look for in the team, uh, of either the ability to sell or openness to the ability to sell. The third thing is just the dedication and tenacity and passion, right? Deep tech startups, invariably, there'll be a lot of crescent troughs uh, in, in the times of troughs. Uh, if the entrepreneur and the VCs ourselves, uh, if we don't have enough conviction, if we are not driven, it's almost impossible uh, to go through that phase, right? It probably it's very easy to give up and you have a lot of reasons, you have hundred reasons to give up and probably the only reason to not give up is your passion. So that is something that we look for as well. So just to summarize that uh, ability to sell deep domain expertise and that kind of passion towards deep technology uh, and the problem they're solving, uh, that is something that we look for on the team side. And on the technology side, there are many things, right? There's go-to-market, there's technology, there's product. The the one framework that has been helpful for us to evaluate is what my colleague uh, Nori, who is a partner at Utrecht, uh, uh, who I work with often, uh, what he calls the pain technology fit. That means to say that is the customer pain well defined. Uh, second, is the technology does the technology work? And third, is this the te right technology to solve this particular problem? It's not product market fit because product market fit comes a bit later. Product market fit. By product market fit, I think most people, what they mean is product go-to market fit, right? But deep tech startups have to start one layer before, which is the pain technology fit. Does the customer pain map to the technology that you have? Does your technology work? Is the customer pain well-defined? And can you use your technology the right solution to this problem? 
So those are the two things: the pain technology fit uh, and the robustness of the team. Those are the two things that kind of help us uh, evaluate the tech companies in the initial conversations. Kiran, that's very well put, especially the last part where you talk about pain technology fit, and not nobody before has ever defined and put it in in those words. And I think that's a very good way to understand how deep tech startups need to be evaluated. Thanks for sharing the framework as well. It's really important to understand what these teams really. uh bring to the table and how you can capture them at the early early stages now have you come across a company a deep tech company that's achieved product market fit because uh again i want to go back to some of the biases right and in my opinion some of the biases that exist in deep tech companies is that there's a sci-fi bias the fact that mm. you know they're so cool that they're so futuristic that you got to keep waiting and waiting and waiting for these things to come to life people think deep tech is something that's 2050 it's so not second mm. is like the ugly duckling um sort of uh, bias that people have where if, where people feel that great technology like this often gets packaged way back in some dodgy looking boxes and it's usually like just this mm. ugly looking and therefore people are not really interested because it's not sexy right it's not something that you go mm. around and keep talking about and customers get to know very easily because it's not a b2c it's sometimes a b2b sort of a model as well and then perhaps the most deterring factor here is what happened with teranos and people always keep um, bringing this up over and over again and they think that deep tech startups fail the most because you know about the amount of funding that they end up raising and they garner a lot of attention because of that from the media and in fact some of the companies that you see that have gone on to raise a lot of money who kind of like fall into this whole deep tech space are ones that we've associate and we know them really well cruise magically spacex djai right. um then you have ninebot carbon zoom uh neuro yep. zooks all of them some of them have gone on to get acquired some of them have gone on to do really really well and some of them obviously have had very public failures mm. now when all of yeah. this is kind of happening around you how does that whole product market fit fit into this context because when do you feel a deep tech company achieves a pmf compared to another company which perhaps is not in a deep tech space a technical let's let's perhaps take a, an example of an enterprise saas company or a b2c startup that's a good question when when has a deep tech company achieved product market fit right uh, on often on on in investing one thing that because we are some most of the times we are taking the technology risk as such we try to see that it is also not that a startup is building a new technology and they are entering a new market because then the risk becomes multiplied right they have to if if it is a product or a technology that has to is catering to a completely new market and they have to uh, educate that market as well then the the problem becomes like double right it's exponentially difficult uh, so most of the times we try to look for companies where if the technology works we know that the market is there of course we go wrong a, a wrong a lot on this for example let's say a biotech company I have a company called bugworks that is developing a new class of antibiotics for drug resistant infections we know that if they are able to bring the market uh, bring the drug to the market that the market is there for the taking right it's it's less that they have to uh, uh, they have to innovate on the market front as well they still have to execute so that is something that we try to look for and in achieving the product market fit the probably one of the more important factors is can they break down their technology into different steps um and 
go about it in a phased approach and is there a way for them to get or what we call the fastest least expensive way to the market initially at least and then move from there i'm not talking about lean principles or such and or not even move fast and break things because you can't really do that in in healthcare for example if you try to move fast and break things it can probably have wrong implications on people's lives um, so at least uh, if they if they are able to break down their r&d steps into uh, break down their r&d into several phases and they can find a way in a fastest least expensive way to the market uh, to get start getting customer feedback even if there is no revenue initially that's fine um, revenue metrics are very difficult to use uh, uh, for even for for the startups as a own and even for us as well that's the reason we try to have strong investment hypothesis before investing but can they have that fastest least expensive way to market so that uh, the founder or the key founders uh, can start thinking less about the technology and also are spending more time on talking to their customers and go to market that is one place wherein we we kind of feel that okay if that startup has actually successfully got that product in a market uh, into the market in some way there is still probably a lot of r and d pending which is fine Uh, but that is one way we feel okay so now that there is uh, we, we have some conviction that this is a team that can get the product in the market and the 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 customers are feeling that this is something that they uh, have a strong need for uh, then it makes sense to double down on the gtm and the path onwards once they bring the product out a deep tech startup brings the product out uh, the the path on commercializing gtm is where what we seen good Uh, learnings from an enterprise saas company right i think a lot of things that apply to especially enterprise saas companies those who are selling to fortune 2000 companies all the things that they do with the funnel analysis and the sales etc uh, and the go to market motion that really kind of like makes sense so uh, that's when when the when the founder shifts from uh, how do I, how do i manage the technology to Uh, now i'm thinking about what are the right channel partners how do i even price it what are the metrics that they sh- i should use in order to uh, commercialize the product when the founders start thinking about that that is when we feel that well the company has some sense of kind of product market fit if that makes sense no it definitely does and you touched upon some very interesting points there uh, with respect to pmf um and i want to extend another question or maybe a follow up to that starting with the right target market right dominating the niche and expanding um you know is something that might work better uh especially in slow moving segments even within a niche yeah. you know when you seek active feedback uh with your more responsive founders you learn more about that particular sector so perhaps you can also talk about how being in japan and investing in different geographies has also provided you the experience and expertise in identifying companies that are coming out of different paths because bugworks today is coming out of india but can you contrast mm-hmm. and compare the same growth for a company in the same sector coming out of singapore or coming out of the us yeah that, i think yeah i think that's uh, those are those those are the key questions so perhaps what i'll do is i'll just spend a minute on uh, my portfolio companies and tell kind of our hypothesis behind why we invested and and what is leading them to do well for example Uh, and and of course we'd like to believe that most of them have product market fit but that's that's quite difficult obviously uh, so first company uh, that i invested in 2018 beginning is a singaporean indian company called tricog uh, they do ai driven analysis of ecg and uh, echocardiogram to diagnose heart diseases uh, uh, they are a b2b company uh, their clients are mostly hospitals diagnostic chains and clinics 
started initially india was a large market but now uh, about uh, about perhaps you can say uh, 40% of the revenue comes from southeast asia and africa and tricog has just crossed 5 million patients in 12 countries when we invested they were at more like uh, about 3 years back they were more about like 500000 patients uh, what worked really well for tricog is the lack of regulation in developing country itself was hugely useful if you were to build something like tricog in japan or us or where, where there are people who are trying to build something like that until you get a regulatory approval you can't even put the product out right the cost of collecting the data is very difficult uh, but what tricog was able to do is they were able to uh, collect the ecg data initially use the doctors to uh, uh, assess the data and give a virtual cardiology solution but while the doctors were annotating the data the machine learning algorithms were getting better and better and at some point the accuracy of machine learning algorithms obviously became 98 and 99 uh, percent uh, or so uh, auc is the term that we use and that happened because they were able to have that clean labeled data set because they were the, the regulations in most of the developing countries that they operate were not yet fully formed that itself became a significant advantage anyone now who is developing because algorithms at the end of the day do technology convergence right what that gave tricog is because they were able to commercialize early they were able to start generating revenues as well which means they got hospitals etc where the switching cost is very high for the clients to switch second because of the data plus algorithms they got a head start over anyone else doing it perhaps you can say a 18 to 24 months head start uh, in doing so during that time they could build all the competitive modes around the company through the go to market uh, by partnerships with medical device makers could be could be partnerships with so they have watershed assets in a canal to commercialize they have uh, uh, they could move into different products so that technology kind of what you call the the head start of 18 to 24 months that gave them uh, a, a, a good time to build other gtms around it so building out of a developing country itself was an advantage collect the data in a developing country and now they can commercialize anywhere uh, for us coming from japan it was interesting because all the japanese device medical device makers uh, one they have very low footprint in most emerging economies of uh, asia and and, and africa uh, and second most of them have a single kind of uh, revenue stream or a device sales revenue stream what they don't have is a recurring revenue stream because of that we were able to facilitate tricog uh, with partnerships uh, of uh, uh, with medical device makers from japan uh, either sales and distribution partnerships so on and so forth which could be useful so the hardware of uh, the medical device makers in japan and the software of tricog was a good combination that is the reason we saw it's kind of an india plus japan solving uh, for the world right that theme was very interesting for us and that's the reason we invested in tricog the second company bugworks that you spoke about uh, is 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 in a in a way it's really interesting the key technology innovation of bugworks in structural biology uh, actually the foundational work related to it was done by a professor in japan called dr murakami and when we were looking to invest in bugworks and when we are looking to invest in any company what we think of is can the company plus utech together is there anything else we can do uh, to enhance the value together uh, it's not just what the company does by itself here is where we were able to foster a research collaboration between bugworks and dr murakami uh, which can be which can be useful to solve a global problem so this is an r and d partnership that we have which was really useful 
Third, I have a portfolio company in, in Singapore and New York called Opal AI, which builds uh, AI-driven solutions for hedging and trading commodities. For them, our value proposition was really simple. Commodities is an industry, or our investment hypothesis was very simple. Commodities is an industry that is less digitized compared to stocks, et cetera. Uh, and um, approaching that from a computational finance perspective, as well as a machine learning perspective, makes a lot of sense because there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and that is the reason that is the, the product that they've developed is good. The founders there had strong footprint in US, uh, Europe, as well as South America. Japan, which arguably forms one-fifth of the global commodities market, was a bit opaque to them. So our value proposition and, and investment hypothesis kind of combined together in investing in them is to invest and help them expand to Japan. So currently, Opal AI uh, has a few, uh, is looking for a few clients in Japan. They, we just help them hire uh, their Japan team as well. So that is, that is another thing uh, that we have. Uh, so these are some of the things that kind of we look at. Um, and I can I can double click on any of those uh, if you have any questions at this point. So you brought up this really interesting point of uh, one one of your companies based in Singapore, one's based out of India, and the other one's based uh, is split between uh, US, the US yeah. and and, uh, and 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 Southeast Asia. One particular thing that we have seen that's changed in the last couple of years, uh, or perhaps in the case of China, it's the last decade is the shifting role of governments and how they've mm. kind of become a key stakeholder in ensuring that this sector or the deep deep tech sciences as we call it is set up for success now governments around the world have undergone shifting roles in new technology and r d support and mm. let's take the two biggest economies right let's take china and the united states now if you take a look at US, it's kind of it's kind of regressed from where it used to be in terms of its R and D spending. As a percentage of its GDP, it dropped more mm. than one point two percent from the mid seventies to where it is right now in about two thousand nineteen two thousand twenty. And in contrast, China has kind of doubled its growth and is spending on R and D yeah. on a purchasing power parity basis has risen over four hundred percent just in the last couple of decades. Now, when you have two of these super economies heading in two different directions, I mean, these numbers might not really make a lot of um, sense if you're not looking at the context. What role do you think do these governments play, do these uh, agencies play, especially in setting startups up for success, VCs up for success? And how do you as a VC firm, as a university VC firm, look at working very closely with these government stakeholders and ensuring that not only do your entrepreneurs have a foundation for success, but deep tech as an industry is progressing mm -hmm. actively in the coming years because there's a lot that needs to that needs to happen. Even within an India context, when you compare what's happening in China, in Japan, in the US, where yeah. we need a lot of the advancements to come into place, and we're in the early days of it, and we're having those conversations. You know it better. You have some very good connections with VCs and industry stakeholders back home in India. Talk to us a little bit more about the role that governments are playing and should be playing in establishing this industry as a mainstream going forward. Yes, I think that's a that's a good point. And, and to that point, I think also, I think because you mentioned US and China, uh, the reason why we are also interested, I'll touch up, up upon the government in a while as well. The reason we are also interested in, let's say, Southeast Asia and India in general as the emergence of deep tech is both of these economies have very interesting perspectives you almost get a technology innovation that can parallel Silicon Valley. 
So there is that first element. On the second element, it's not like Israel where the local market is so small that uh, you can't do anything. You have to be global from day one. So the local market is big, big enough for these entrepreneurs to commercialize their product and generate or make the product robust enough before they expand globally, which will they have to. Uh, that's the second element. Third element is the cost is still a fairly developing country cost structure. And fourth, uh, unlike, let's say, Japanese companies who do really well, uh, several of the deep tech companies in India and Southeast Asia are also globally focused. By investing in deep tech companies in India and Southeast Asia, what we can get is elements of all these four together, kind of like Silicon Valley level innovation, developing country cost structure, a B2B market that can potentially be large enough and their home, uh, but also globally focused. I think these elements of these four unique, probably only India and Southeast Asia has those elements currently. And that is the reason we are bullish about it. And now coming to the role of the government, right? There are a couple of things in which the government can really help. One place where we've been facing a lot of emphasis, especially when we talk to universities in India, as well as in Singapore and Southeast Asia, is how do you cleanly commercialize or let the academic entrepreneurs spin off companies from universities? Is there, Japan does it well, uh, Israel does it really well. Is there a way to ensure and standardize the process where a technology licensing office of a university, for example, with the help of the government, of course, uh, if they are nationalized universities, uh, can you allow uh, a researcher who is interested in becoming an entrepreneur to cleanly take out the IP uh, and, and gain an exclusive license for it? Uh, uh, and do it in a standardized quick process because that is fundamental, right? If you do that per unit dollar invested for us as venture capital, it will have a lot of, maybe venture capital has the ultimate leverage in terms of the value created per unit dollar invested if you look at all asset classes, right? Uh, in, in that way, can the, can, can, can the universities or especially the nationalized universities uh, let the clean licensing or out-licensing of the IP uh, to the startups. That is something that we are focusing on and standardizing that process across the board. It is good for universities as well because having that, like for example, Stanford had a small percentage of equity in Google, I think, which really helped the university become self-sustaining, right? Not just depend upon grants and other things for the operation or milking students for the operations, so to speak. Uh, so that is something where government has been, government can play a strong role uh, in commercializing the IP. And second is uh, obviously, I think a uh, couple of things, Bayrak in India has done really well. Non-dilutive capital, there is always a value of funding, right? Uh, initially for the project to take off and then probably once the startup has secured some amount of seed funding before they raise a series C, uh, sorry, series A. These are the two valleys of gaps that exist in the funding, especially in the early stage of a deep tech company. Uh, in getting the product from lab to market, uh, non-dilutive grants can be very, very helpful uh, so that uh, the entrepreneurs can at least show some metrics before raising seed funding or some, some sense of technology development before seed funding. That is where I think uh, governments can play a strong role. Uh, Bayrak in India and a couple of government associated bodies in Singapore, uh, Japan has J Startup by Ministry of Economy, et cetera. They have done some good job in doing that. So the importance of non-dilutive capital in the early stage uh, is, is, uh, is in the very early stage, even though it may be a couple of hundred thousand dollars, that is, uh, that is very useful uh, as well. And third, I think um, uh, on the policy making itself, uh, pushing towards, I think Japan is, is doing well on certain things. For example, 
because Ministry of Economy Japan oversees several industries, they've been pushing a lot of industries towards digital transformation, and uh, which which essentially is saying, hey, uh, also look at uh, using products of startups or collaborating from startups. There, there is a, there is some sense of comfort that government can provide in ensuring that 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 digital transformation happens well, which pushes the economy forward. And fourth, obviously, in building the uh, the regulatory environment uh, around it, uh, not taking that the, the the first attitude that well there's a new technology coming, let us completely regulate it and and let the technology be in the regulatory capture. Right, most of the time that ends up helping the incumbents rather than the startup. So taking a proactive stance on regulatory aspects of it as well, uh, and and uh, using uh, and and looking at several models before arriving or before regulating the part completely. Uh, is or, or perhaps, for example, creating a regulatory sandbox uh, in in certain regions uh, where you can commercialize the products in a limited way for these deep tech companies. If you are not really sure about it, that is some role that the government can play. And obviously, in uh, ensuring an exit environment, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, later. So these are some of the few things that we try to work with the government on. No, I like that. And it takes an ecosystem to build an ecosystem, right? From R and D to industrialization to commercialization. Deep tech today encompasses a broad ecosystem that includes a variety of participants, each of who have to play an active role, uh, especially more so in the smaller ecosystems that is organized around particular field of research, technology, or industry. I mean, deep tech technologies also can affect entire value or supply chains, and therefore require more thorough analysis from their stakeholders. Uh, especially uh, from stakeholder interdependencies and value creation models in order to uh, determine how they align with goals, strategies, and more importantly, KPIs. And newcomers can often, right. you know, kind of like find themselves in these unfamiliar territories if none of these are defined. And therefore, you need to involve more types of players from more diverse sources in both public and private sectors. And that, I think, is a very key characteristics of deep tech, which is unique. Uh, from other sectors, in my opinion, because of the involvement of both public and private sectors for the future success of the industry itself, and each of which has its own needs and set priorities to make uh, their own contributions. Yeah, that interdisciplinary nature of it is very helpful, and that is exactly the reason at the beginning of it I said that, like, well, it, it's it's a myth that the VCs and the entrepreneurs involved in the deep tech are just um, PhDs. That's a myth. Of course, there are a lot of PhDs who are doing significant contribution, but bringing these uh, things from diverse fields uh, where we rarely help the startup that we invest on the technology side, but there's a lot we do on team building, which is which is, which is is great. We have a HR function and where we help our uh, companies recruit key engineers as well as uh, probably their first go-to-market hire where we place a lot of emphasis on. And in second, uh, uh, second, where we place a lot of emphasis on is obviously market development, helping those deep tech companies, even if they don't have a full product yet, talk to the customers and get that feedback and see how they react to it. Because often most of our deep tech companies are B2B. And unlike B2C, a B2B buyer is a very rational buyer, right? The ROI, whether it is increasing their revenue, the economic value to customers, the EVC needs to be very clear. That is something that we uh, help our companies uh, a, a lot as well. And third is, I cannot stress this enough, the importance of financial planning and analysis for deep tech startups is probably compounded even more than a, a normal startup because they have no revenues to deal with. In that sense, management of cash flow becomes really, really important. And that is where we try to 
play or or place a lot of emphasis and help those companies as well uh, is there uh, how do you structure your funding rounds can you do a a a, a, a bridge round or it's always should be and, and that is something that we take as well if we think a startup needs a million dollars at the seed stage to get to let's say a certain landmark to raise that next round we probably invest 1.5 million dollars because we know uh, that it it often can take longer and several things can go wrong uh and we kind of let the uh, entrepreneurs also think heavily about financial planning and analysis uh, which could be very useful and the cash flow management which becomes very important uh, for a, a deep tech company in particular now i completely agree with it i mean deep tech ecosystems are highly dynamic and you need these players to play an integral role and you mentioned the role of vcs i mean for example providing funding but often you know just helping in creating those corporate uh, relationships and partnerships and helping with go to market strategies uh, go a long way and likewise you know corporate partners provide a lot of funding and a host of other necessities not least of which is access to market and potential customers and universities you mentioned this as well are very important research partners and facilitators frequently who play a role in helping these uh, early stage deep tech companies uh, one yeah look for talent and two more importantly just help them experiment as much as possible that actually brings me to a, a very interesting point which hasn't been touched upon um and when we talk about deep tech it kind of goes under spoken about in 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 most scenarios as well right because when we talk about deep tech we often associated with with money uh which is good uh which you know obviously you require money but that's not the only thing required for success within uh the deep tech the deep tech sciences now uh mm-hmm. we talk about hiring of talent and i think that is a very key uh, element in terms of building these companies and knowledge data skills expertise uh, access to market or all currencies that link these ecosystem players and set these companies up for success which also means that traditional um you know re- uh, metrics that we look at revenues profit sometimes can be pushed for a later stage if you're building your team out from scratch you did mention things that are appealing to you as an investor when you take a look at them or when you have the first conversation with these founders uh, at the point of discovery now as these companies are building out their own teams what kind of advice are you giving them in terms of how do they do that how do they grow their teams and how do you think founders are the best performing founders in your portfolio have done a fantastic jobs in terms of hiring and recruiting the best talent and keeping them in their teams so that they are then positioning themselves for greater success yeah i i i think the the that's a that's a fantastic question and a very important one at that right uh, if the the person who is the ceo or even the cto one thing we try to see is can they understand the gaps that they are facing we mentioned that deep tech is fairly interdisciplinary what are the gaps either within the technology or product development that of course there are a lot of gaps in the market development that they would not have covered in their co-founding team which is okay uh, can they understand or can we help rather uh, uh, help them understand that these are the gaps that exist and then uh, can we uh, make them or can we help them find the right talent to plug those gaps the openness to external feedback and external support uh, is is something that we that we look for and some of our successful founders have done that really well and 
the second thing is it's almost it's extremely difficult that in a very early stage we'll bring a business focused person and we'll let him or her help the ceo and things work this is where we try to place a lot of emphasis on uh, uh, is at least one of the team members open to or can we help that person become a well rounded ceo do they have enough conviction or do they have enough interest to grow the company and see that see that 360 degree perspective and can we help them do that and almost the best ceos are all the time uh, the best deep tech ceos are the ones who play the kind of role of project manager and say that well i'll i'll ensure that the technology element is handled by a couple of my teammates and i'll focusing more on customer development and market development and the paradox is it may feel in deep tech startup that well in another 3 years i may not release a product at all why do i even need need to talk to market or think about business uh, but that's not the way it usually works right so that is something that i think couple of our ceos have done really well and in a growth stage startup probably if you look at some of our series b c stage companies the ones that do really well it's almost always the case where the ceo has a very capable ceo uh, sorry coo chief operating officer in that sense the ceo manages the coo and the ceo manages everyone else because the ceo has other things as well right and i think that is something that uh, that that has emerged uh, really well as uh, really well as well recruiting a cap- very capable coo and in in in, some, in in when they are hitting that kind of a product market fit stage that usually solves uh, certain certain case of issues as well uh, and and most of the times i think in hiring their first go to market hire i think a lot of uh, we've seen a lot of deep tech startups and startups in general uh, going for a very experienced person uh, who has deep experience a strong network in that field uh, which is fine which is which is okay but on most of the successful startups that we've seen it's usually the first go to market hire is actually someone who is okay experienced who has some network but who actually has enough tenacity and enough hustle to go through it and also because the first go to market hire he is not just going to put the product in front of the customer and the customer is going to buy right the most important role of a first go to market hire is he or she should be able to understand the product how the customers are using the product and convey that need back to the product development team uh, usually in the initial stages the ceo himself or herself is the product manager or go to market person doing that but the first go to market choosing that first go to market hire who has some entrepreneurial instinct who understand the product uh, often these are the people who are engineer turned business people i think that it, the 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 role of the technical sales or engineering sales is emerging significant so we often think hiring those sort of people uh, is is more useful than somebody with just a network somebody who can contribute to the product as well those are some of the things that we have seen uh, uh, we have seen uh, working working out uh, really well Uh, for for our portfolio companies in building the team itself these are great points and i'm sure a lot of founders who might end up listening to this podcast uh, building in and, the deep deep tech spaces uh, would take a lot of cues from that and, and i think you were about to say something yeah, go and ahead. one point if i may sorry yeah if one point we may mention is also there's this computer science algorithm uh, we we need to think we i usually think in terms of mental models uh, so there's a, there's a there's a tactic called exploration versus exploitation so how much do you explore how wide do you go how do you accumulate knowledge and then once you find a sense of it you limit the search space and start applying that knowledge to a specific problem uh, it's almost always that the successful ceos especially in the deep tech space we know 
are the ones the one problems some of the times the deep tech startups may have is they start they just start exploring the technology wide and wide but not exploiting it as such so i think the balance between that exploration versus exploitation comes from a computer science algorithm background that is something that we have seen our successful ceos doing really well as well our successful founders doing really well as well that's well, a very good point that you bring up and again um, you did mention how mental models are something you can like live by and uh, i wanted to bring this up at a later stage but i'm glad you you brought that up and since we've been talking about the sector we've been talking about building companies in deep tech we've been talking about scaling companies in deep tech one aspect that doesn't get talked about enough again for the biases and myths that exist in the industry are the exits right now technically yeah. we have seen exits in uh, the deep tech space we've talked about it previously we saw we spoke about um, you know zooks we spoke about dji cruise spacex we saw all of these companies that have gone on to do extremely extremely well uh perhaps and we've also seen the other side where companies have not done well but we, let's focus more on the exits here let's more talk about how vcs can expect to make money back what are your yep. current what's your current stance on that how are you looking at it from an exit standpoint how do you talk to your founders in fact sometimes um when they're thinking about building their companies and perhaps some of these companies can get bought out of the early stage as well as we have seen in the past it is possible because some of the technologies that they're working on might be fantastic or sometimes they may just own ip and i and and a lot of these companies just got will get bought for the ip that they hold and there are bigger companies yep. who are working on specific things just very confidentially also speaking without taking the name of the company we uh, ended up speaking to this uh, really uh, futuristic company a couple of years ago and um, they 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 were building something in the um, in the ar ar mm-hmm. lens space and uh, they were approached by google and apple for some acquisitions simply because of the number of patents that they that they owned they had close yeah. about 395 yeah. patents themselves and these are some integral patents that um, both of these companies needed to go out and build the whatever google glass or whatever apple was coming out with or is coming out with now that becomes a potential way for these companies to make exits and it's not just the business sometimes so talk yeah. to us about a little bit from that perspective where can the exits happen how can the exits happen and what are we seeing in terms of uh, spacs as well because they have been hot and very important for deep tech if they will be important for deep tech going forward as well if you can maybe touch upon a little bit of all of those three points it would be great for our audience to understand where can we yeah. see as well see some return on their investment here yeah i think a couple of years back that sort of like google's acquisition of uh, deepmind is a ultimate example of it where they priced it in terms of okay uh, per phd how am i how much am, am i going to pay uh, for the acquisition i think that was what it was done and which uh, but that that trend seemed to have died down right i think that be higher times it's it's uh, uh, that trend seemed to have at least uh, vanished for, for 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 the time being let me talk a bit about japan so for example utech till now we've invested in over 110 companies and we luckily thanks to the works of my colleagues we've been fairly successful we've had 13 ipos and 12 m&as including four unicorn ipos on both tokyo stock exchange as well as nasdaq uh, japan stock exchange in particular before i talk about exits in general uh, specifically related to japan if you look at uh top 10 startups in japan that have been successful on the stock exchange in most countries it's usually payment and e-commerce and ride hailing which is fantastic and which is fine but in case of japan it has a variety of startups uh, because for deep tech companies the pe ratio on the tokyo stock exchange is fairly high it's about 90 plus 
that's because about 70% of that's because of two things one japan has a startup specific market called mothers which is where the barrier to go ipo is fairly low uh, and uh, the, and and 70% of the mother markets has retail investors and japan has that history of uh, understanding technologies uh, or has a history of using those technologies if not understanding i think for all those purposes uh, 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 some of our deep tech companies have done really well uh, by going public and of course we've had companies acquired by google and and paidu and and couple of others as well um, when we think about uh, of course the, the primary goal for deep tech company at the end of the day i feel is still how do you build an enduring company right because you are solving a problem uh, and and most of the founders are driven towards it as well from that standpoint our primary of course the, the the best exit path for us as a vc is whatever the entrepreneur prefers at the end of the day uh, but uh, the way we think about it obviously there is ipo is is a possibility and m&a as well let me talk about a bit about m&a first and then probably about ipo this is where both from a growth funding standpoint and go to market standpoint we try to involve we try to do two things one at the very early stage we would prefer uh, we would prefer to not have a corporate investor in the company because often it can be seen as well they are almost a, a capital having a capital relationship with a single company or a single large company is a bit dangerous at least in the early stage so what we tend to do is once the company reaches a series a or series b stage probably series b stage is the right one or series b to c we try to bring in several corporate investors from multiple geographies let's say it's a healthcare company uh, so probably an investor from japan who is a medical device maker probably one from us one from europe so on and so forth uh, and having those and and not just as an investor we try to see if this startup can actually help that corporation build out their new business in the sense that uh, let's say the startup already has their product in a certain market but that large company does not can that large company and the startup collaborate to uh, in a go to market partnership to commercialize together or co build in a certain market that obviously can lead to m and a right it begins with a small capital partnership through investing and then the go to market expansion and that could lead to an m and a that's some of the things that we try to do as well on the public market side of course i think nasdaq tokyo stock exchange these are the two markets to an extent hong kong for licenses especially um, but for broader deep tech tokyo stock exchange and nasdaq these are the two ones that have done really well um, in general the private markets valuations are mostly narrative driven right uh, what is the momentum what is the what what are, what are, what is uh, uh, what technology is hot to an extent what are the other people doing in the field so it's primarily narrative driven the public markets have usually been fairly numbers driven what's the cash flow what's your growth rate what's your uh, uh, what's your uh, uh, net dollar retention whatever it is we i think are at a very interesting juncture where the private markets have continue to be narrative driven but the public markets have also slowly moving towards narrative driven uh, valuations or narrative driven market capitalization right of course tesla is the uh, is the is, is the ultimate flag bearer of that but there are others as well Uh, we are at an interesting juncture where for our deep tech companies let's say especially in deep tech companies in uh, uh, that are not in us raising a 100 million dollar growth round in private capital is still extremely tough uh, but looks like we are at a time where the public market through spacs can offer that uh, that 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 viable path 
the reason is that buyback of course you you have a sponsor who is kind of supporting you so you have to spend less time doing that pre ipo money raising and so on and so forth and the second and most important thing is traditionally in ipo you are barred from making those forward looking statements right and deep tech companies most of the time even at the time of ipo it's very difficult to use traditional accounting to say what they have done in the past and let me try to do a valuation on top of that but because of spacs you you can do those forward looking statements and and the public market is rewarding that type of narrative that has led to a led to a path wherein for a deep tech company in the series d stage rather than raising trying to raise 100 million dollar in vc funding in the private market uh, can we do that uh, in the public markets as well because of course um, going public offers liquidity to existing shareholders including vcs and entrepreneurs which is great but it also offers access to that long term growth capital right uh, which which can take those bets Uh, that's the reason i think spac is very interesting because one it offers more liquidity and second it can enable a couple of the deep tech companies to raise that kind of growth capital via the spac route uh, and and go public rather than trying to stay private and trying to raise money so in general of course there are a lot of risks associated with it but in general we are very uh, very very happy that uh, spac has emerged as one more liquidity and access to capital option for deep tech companies I like how you summed it up. I mean, um, you know, we're the only way an industry will end up getting more investments is if it's if it ends up giving exits to its investors. Now, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you address it from your portfolio perspective. Like when you are speaking to your companies or when you speak to your co-investors within the firm, how are you guys thinking about your own portfolio companies and the exits that they are perhaps going to embark upon in the few years or maybe some of them just go and build successful companies and maybe start list themselves on stock markets how do those conversations pan out to you internally one when you are investing in the early days do you do an exit analysis because perhaps it's a good thing and a bad thing to do sometimes you are drawing comparables with things that don't really even match up or two midway through the life cycle of the startup say it's going to go on raise series a b c and you perhaps have a chance to get a secondary exit do you analyze and see if this is the right time for you to make an exit or do you like maybe sit back and be like you know what we're happy to play the long waiting game yeah i think in general of course uh, we are a 10 year fund so we take a patient uh, uh, we take a long term view of it but we absolutely do uh, exit analysis in the beginning itself even though the startup is really early and there is a strong reason why we do that the the when we do that sort of exit analysis uh, uh, at the early stage um, though the numbers themselves may not mean because it's really really difficult i, I don't think anyone expects that if you are saying that well this company will get bought out at 1 billion dollars and uh, we own 10% and we'll get 100 million dollars the numbers itself mean very little but the process that comes up to it when we do that sort of exit analysis then it comes up that okay we are saying that the company will generate 10 million dollars of revenue by 2024 that means to say that uh, well they have to commercialize their product in 2023 can they really do it so doing that kind of exit analysis brings up what are the metrics or what are the milestones that the company needs to hit right and that helps us a lot there is a reason the reason we do that sort of exit analysis in the beginning is we can come up with those sort of milestones okay we are assuming that this company it's a life sciences company we are assuming that if it goes public in 2025 at x million dollar potential valuation or market cap that means 
they should have completed phase three trial of the drug. Let's assess the company now. Is it realistic? Can, can, can they do it? Or what do they need to do to, in order to do it? If, if this company has to generate $50 million of revenue, they should have expanded well beyond their initial market, let's say, which is Singapore, they should have expanded to US. Can they really do it? So doing that exit analysis helps in two things. One, setting up the internal metrics within the fund to know that, hey, what are the things that a startup like this needs to do? Second, it also helps us align with the founders as well. Once we say that, of course, uh, it's not that the conversation that we have in the early stage founders is, hey, uh, you are shooting for $1 billion valuation. But in when we have internal discussion within the fund, the metrics that we come up, then we can show them to the entrepreneurs and say, hey, do you think it is realistic? Let us discuss about how do we go about it. And that sets a good long-term blueprint uh, for us to work together as well, right? Having things aligned, having a plan is important for the same reason, because the process of planning itself is very useful. Of course, when the things go, it's like strong opinions weekly held, right? You have that strong hypothesis. You have the strong sense of milestones. How you reach them is different and you can change it with new data coming in. So that is the reason we kind of tend to do that sort of exit analysis at the early stage. And we, uh, on the m and side, how we push the companies towards approach it, I already mentioned by getting the capital uh, corporate investors and helping them build those go-to-market partnerships because companies are, are at the end of the day uh, sold, uh, but not bought, right? Nobody is going to come and buy you directly. So it's, uh, it's as a sales outreach, we, how we try to do on the IPO itself, uh, that is something as soon as the company there are. Uh, one thing I think uh, that most deep tech founders is by definition, because they are thinking long term, we have seen a lot of deep tech entrepreneurs have a strong affinity towards taking their company public as well. That is very good alignment for us as well. Uh, of course, in the process of getting public, if somebody comes out and buys you out and if it, it, it works for all shareholders, that's great. But most of the time, several of the startup entrepreneurs themselves, especially in the deep tech space, are looking to build that sort of enduring companies uh, and they want to they have a 30 40 year vision sometimes which is good ha having that sort of vision is important that is where we try to see that well in 2026 let's say you're going to do an ipo let us start small let us do an audit right now let us talk to uh, uh, let, let us see which are the potential stock markets in which you can listen is it nasdaq is it london stock exchange is it tokyo if so let us start building those equity story uh, which can help uh, the, which can enhance the business as well and which, which can enhance the narrative as well. Uh, perhaps uh, let us try to look for a VP of finance and a CFO candidate. Let's not, and let's get better at doing, let's say quarterly projections to an extent uh, or, or quarterly cash flow if you have less revenue. Um, so pushing the company towards that well before the exit itself, that set, I think sets a good preference. And often most of the teams, what we have seen is when there is an IPO discussion going, even if it is three years down the line, the corporate governance of the companies itself gets better. And that's very valuable for us as well, right? Whether it eventually goes public or not, having the strong corporate governance helps as well. That is, those are, those are some of the things that uh, the, the way we think about. But at the end of the day, the best exit for us is whatever works for the entrepreneur in most cases. So M&A is good. IPO, of course, uh, is, is a fantastic option as well. The best part is probably the company is preparing for an IPO and in the process gets bought out. But yeah, maybe I'm, uh, I'm wishing for too many things here. No, that's fantastic. You know, deep tech ecosystem, end game and path of progress are highly uncertain. And given any idea, startup, emerging technologies, they may or may not succeed. And traditionally, top-down strategy and R&D project management techniques 
need to be reinforced by methodologies designed to manage these uncertainties right and different management approaches mm-hmm. can provoke and foster uh, new and desired results and that's what we as vcs or any of the ecosystem partners need to do it's not about thinking about it from a single bet or multiple bet perspective it's more about engaging with and nurturing an entire ecosystem and looking for the winning startups and technologies to emerge from it and uh, yeah, finally and, and, yeah go ahead on that front uh, just a quick point on that front that is the reason we also uh, of course we have a reactive approach to investing when things come and we approach the opportunity based on the merit but we also have a thematic uh, significant time part of our time goes in building those thematic approaches to deep tech investing let's say right. currently for example i'm very interested in the emergence of digital humans the emergence of spell as a platform for example of fragrance as a platform a privacy preserving computing so we map out these techniques and uh, and talk to startups uh, uh, in the field either through outreach or through inflow as well that means to say that well before talking to a deep tech startups we already have a sense of kind of what we are looking for which often helps otherwise it it becomes really difficult and that's how it helps us build a good investment hypothesis because if we have a strong investment the, the the thing i love about deep tech investing is it's almost impossible to rely upon revenue metrics in the initial stages so you need to have it forces us as investors to put the intellectual rigor to build out that strong investment hypothesis uh, and that really helps because when we have a strong investment hypothesis in a company and in a sector even if there are initial hiccups in the company we can still stay true to the company as such right it's not like the company fails in like one of their technical milestones and we suddenly lose interest in it so having a strong investment hypothesis helps us to build those trust with the entrepreneurs as well as have conviction in the company for the long so that is something that we focus internally as well spend a lot of time doing this thematic investing approach i agree and you know it's also very important for all the or for everybody in this ecosystem to learn from the failures and not be deterred by it and it is the very nature of deep tech and the industries that that kind of like fall under this bigger umbrella that many many companies as i previously mentioned will not succeed but what's most important is to really impart those lessons so that you can inform the next generation of entrepreneurs about the sector about the key risks about the biases that exist here and therefore we can only keep nurturing this as an ecosystem and you know that's a fantastic note to end the podcast on because we are in the early days of deep tech and the paradigm and the shifts that are taking place in this sector players roles stakeholders rules everything is going to evolve vcs are going to evolve with their uh, ideas their thoughts their thesis you mentioned about being thematic in this particular sector as well and as these new discoveries are made and technologies demonstrate their potential i'm very confident that we'll see some really exciting companies pop up all across the globe and you guys are sitting at a fantastic vantage point to uh, evaluate these and make investments yeah. and perhaps the first rule yeah. um should be for all stakeholders to set their own goals while they're getting into deep tech understand the sector understand where you want to operate do not just go and take a spray and pray model because this is not one of those sectors where that really works only then can you really okay. learn including your failures and tap into the true potential of this ecosystem and create a win-win kind of a situation for yourselves entrepreneurs your stakeholders your lps the people that you work with and more importantly for the sector itself yeah i think the momentum for deep tech startups is very much there by momentum i mean mass and velocity right by mass i mean the substance by velocity i mean the dynamism or the flow uh, so uh, the momentum for deep tech is really there 
and I be, I do believe that the next decade will be about deep tech, especially in emerging economies. Uh, fantastic, Kiran. This has been a great session, and deep tech startups do offer opportunities to do to those who take their time to understand their differences, their biases, and uh, their own thesis. We hope to see more investments coming from your side, and I want to bring you on at a later stage onto the podcast just to one contrast and compare where you've been today and where you are perhaps a year from now, because this sector is growing very quickly as you previously mentioned. So perhaps very soon we'll have you back on just to go. gauge your own personal learnings about the sector absolutely yeah thank you very much uh, for your time akash as you can see that episode was packed with wonderful insights thanks so much kiran for your time and for sharing light on the deep tech space i think for all of us who haven't heard or haven't done a lot of research in the deep tech industry this is a wonderful one on one you've really explained to us what the sector means what it takes to invest in this sector what do you look for when you're investing in founders building companies in the sector and most importantly how do you analyze them both from an exit point of view as well as from what is required to make this industry a very successful one by working very closely with some potential stakeholders if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode please go ahead and share this with somebody that you like or subscribe and rate our podcast because that's another way that we can get our show in front of as many people as possible so we've got some wonderful guests lined up in the coming week so make sure that you tune back in and listen to who we've got and most importantly what else can you learn about some new sectors up and coming within the indian tech and vc ecosystem until then stay safe everybody and keep hustling